Hi, my name is Shani Jamila, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Lineage. This show is actually part of my practice as a conceptual artist. My work, which is made in response to centuries of family records meticulously researched by my genealogist grandmother, explores ancestry, identity formation, and the idea of home. On Lineage, I host intimate, in-depth conversations with fellow socially engaged Black artists about these same themes. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome my longtime friend to the show, Mark Bamuti Joseph. Mark's one of the most brilliant people I know. His opera libretto, We Shall Not Be Moved, was named among the best classical music performances by the New York Times, and his work, Pelota, is toured nationally. Future projects include commissions for the Perelman Center and the Washington National Opera. You might have also seen him in the HBO adaptation of Between the World and Me by ta Coates, which we discussed on the last episode of Lineage with its director, Camila Forbes. Mark currently serves as the Vice President and Artistic Director of Social Impact at the Kennedy Center. We open up with a conversation about a piece he contributed to my film, We Hold These Truths, about how he came to be. Let's listen in. So where to begin? I feel like where I want to start is inside the really beautiful piece that you made for for our film, We Hold These Truths. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you begin by talking about the circumstances of your birth, but you do it through the lens of your ancestors, right? Mm -hmm. So you said, I born here because my parents folks was running from death squads, muted speech, and no option to vote. And I love, I love that you start the story from there. So can you tell us what you know about, about the story of your birth through the lens of your ancestors? Sure. Um, I, I, you know, it's like you, you almost always want to take it back to 1492 because kind of, you know, I'm not exactly sure how to, how far back to go, but how far back um, can you go? How far back can I go? That's a great question. Well, my my grandmother, who the piece is primarily focused on, my um, my mother's mother, was born in 1914 in Haiti. In 1915 uh, through 1934, the United States um, began an intentional occupation. Um, of Haiti, which is like much of the country's history is um, marked by uh, intense and violent and um, sadistic uh, colonization practices, but also dramatically underreported for reasons that I think are both um, practical and political, but also spiritual. Um, so my grandmother was born in that time, um, had my mother relatively late in life. Uh, she was, uh, she was 39 when she had my mom, which, um, right now that's, uh, not such a big deal, but I think then it was a, it was a bigger deal. Um, by the time my mother was born, in 1953, um, uh, the Francois Duvalier, who is colloquially known as Papa Doc, um, 
was in firm control of the country and um, the democratic enterprise was um, on life support. There, there was no democracy. It was just a full-on uh, dictatorship, including um, a paramilitary um, uh, kind of group of thugs called the Tonto Makut, uh, which carried out um, Duvalier's um, kind of hegemony and uh, and rule. And my grandmother was an outspoken woman. She was uh, uh, she was an educator. She had um, deeply held political beliefs. My mother tells me of um, fear because there was political literature um, throughout the house that uh, served as kind of a, a counter messaging to the authoritarianism uh, that was rampant in Haiti at the time. So. Um, yeah, so my grandmother uh, came to the United States um, not only for um, kind of more economic um, possibility, but also for political possibility. And you, you gotta <laughs> you gotta love the irony of a black woman leaving a black republic to come to the United States in the 1960s in order to find and achieve greater political latitude and more social freedoms. So my mother was born in 1953, came to the United States with my grandmother in 1964, and I was born in 1975. A Scorpio. I am that. ask about me um but the but so was my grandmother ah so ask about her yeah so um so that same kind of intensity that same um spirit that same drive and and focus which is astrologically divined is very much a a part of who she is who Mm -hmm. she was who she continues to be in in my life a, a freedom seeker and uh, someone that you just don't want to mess with. You talk about that irony of what it means to have left Haiti and come to the U.S. Did she come immediately to Queens where you came up or did, did she go somewhere else first? Yeah, so um, so they were in Queens. Uh, on the other side of my family, my father's father, my father's father, my father's mother, they came to the United States. They actually left my uh, my dad in Haiti with his brother, with some relatives, and um, later went back for them. But yeah, everybody uh, started out in Queens. Um, at first in St. Albans, and um, you know when my parents got married, they got married and moved into a little studio apartment in Regal Park, and that's where I was born. Mm. How was the experience of America for them then? Well, I, I think that um, American whiteness has, American whiteness is funny style. Whiteness is funny style. Um, is not necessarily predicated on any kind of um, genetic 
logic. It, it is um, a, a Frankenstein amalgam of sociology and hate. And um, so I think that there was something about their experience of being black in this country relative to, um, you know, civil rights era reform. Um, that uh, additionally placed them as other. That there was something about their immigrant status that um, kind of lifted them both connected to and apart from their American-born counterparts. Um, my mother, in particular, um, was really academically successful. I remember, um, but beyond being academically successful, she was um, in tune with pop culture. I remember growing up, um, there was a time where on Nickelodeon, they had all these shows from the 1960s that were on right around the time that she would come home from work. And she caught me watching the monkeys at some point. I remember watching like, oh, the monkeys. Me, right. <laughs> and she was like, Davy Jones. Oh my God. I had such a crush. And, you know, just went on and talked about the Beatles and talked about. So, so she was very much connected in that way. Yeah. Um, pop culturally. And, you know, that time, that 11 year period from 1964 to my parents' marriage in 1974 to my birth in 1975, um, as a younger person, that seemed like, an eternal interval, but it was really actually a, a, a very accelerated pace. And maybe uh, again, for that time, it was, uh, it was on par with where things, uh, where things were, how folks moved, um, socially and romantically. But, um, yeah, I, I think in general, they, um, they were learning how to be American. And I, I, I can only really speak to my personal experience with them in the 1980s as the Cosby show came on. And um, I, I, I was, uh, I did commercials when I was a, a young kid from friggin' Duncan Hines cookies to Cabbage Patch Kid. Like I, I, I was, one of the like four black kids that you would see on national commercials, like for a three for a three year period. Wait a minute, I don't 1980s. think I knew this part of your story. So, Cabbage Patch oh, Kids man. is a come up because I remember how mm -hmm. seriously we took that. Like, did that? Yeah. What did that do to your rep in school? I can only imagine you must have been strutting them elementary school hallways. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, Shawnee, I, I will send you a link. <laughs> I have, my father recently found the Cabbage Patch Kid commercial on YouTube. Oh, please. And, I, and I, I will, I will send you the link. I'm glad that we waited until <laughs> after this moment, because otherwise this conversation would just be about me and the Cabbage Patch Kid commercial. But, um, <laughs> but that was also part of, okay, so, so one, it was part of their, um, matriculation to the country was through the lens of commercial television, through corporate products, through tokenism. Um, I, I think that that I was the first person in my family 
to be an active token at five, six, seven years old. And um, I, I think that there were all these lessons learned there. Now, at the time, we didn't have that language. We didn't have that vocabulary. You know, you, you use the phrase to come up. That's all it was, was I was a person in my family that was on TV. And therefore, um, whatever it was that my parents were seeking, um, that my grandparents were seeking in terms of moving here, I was starting to embody that a kind of presence on um, on commercial television. Um, and at the same time, we were the black family on any given set. So um, there was a kind of maturity and accelerated experience there, too, um, with what was going to become multiculturalism. But we, we weren't there yet. Um, I, I think, you know, these companies were just trying not to get called out by the NAACP or 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 whoever. Um, but all but all those things, too, were um not only a part of my upbringing, they were a part of their upbringing. They're part of their American story. Have they told you about the moment when they first saw that that theatrical spark, when they knew as a child that this would be something that you would excel in? It's uh, a great question. Um, no, I, I think it just was. I think it, I, I think, okay, so, so like, I was, I identified more as an athlete. I was charismatic. I could read good, <laughs> you know, I had, the, I had those things going for me. Um, it was really my literacy, I think, that was um, a conduit to, um, to some of the other enterprises just because I had a facility with language and as as we know at an early age having a facility with language just being able to um, comprehend a script uh, was a decided advantage and I, I don't know necessarily that I had real talent um, uh, especially in that early time. As a matter of fact, um, <laughs> when, uh, you know, I was going on these commercial auditions, um, I went on one audition for some product that was uh, a commercial that was being choreographed by Michael Peters. Michael Peters, um, God rest his soul, is the choreographer that choreographed Michael Jackson's Beat It video, among many legendaries. So, so um, I could not dance and uh, got in this audition and uh, failed miserably. It was kind of like um, it was kind of like an episode of The Facts of Life or something where like everybody's doing the choreography and Blair's going in one direction and Tootie's going in the other direction. I was yes, Tootie. I can see it. <laughs> <laughs> or Blair, whatever. <laughs> I was, I did not get it right. Um, so I came out of the audition crying. Oh. My mom put me in dance class uh, shortly thereafter and uh, about four classes um, into my 
dance career and audition came up for this musical called the uh called the tap dance kid at the time Savion glover was uh was in the starring role they were looking for understudies and just kind of like a bench basically of of young kids so um uh i got the role based on i guess an ability to sing and maybe also just um a character um that that uh, my parents had instilled in me. And so I, I don't know that it was so much of a theatrical spark. I kind of stumbled forward um, when I failed. My parents um, prepared me to succeed where um, where there had been missteps. And from there it was just a lot of hard work. Um, and I, I the the I, I wouldn't necessarily identify myself still as having a theatrical spark, but what I do have is fire. And that is also something that I just get from my grandmother. Um, the, the piece that we uh, shared um, with the film, I, I think starts with the, with the words, I wouldn't say that we're witches, but I come from slave revolt people. And I think that language is um, um, is a little bit of an oracle, is definitely an opening to not only my matrilineal lineage, but also how I identify as performer. Um, there's, I, I don't, I don't know if I'm a, a great actor, but I um, connect to something elemental. And the thing that I miss most about live performance in this moment is the opportunity to conjure inside of the cauldron of theatrical space. And that conjuring, that magic, that fire, that connection, that spirit of revolt, all that is I, I owe to my ancestral lineage. So beautifully put. Mm, I yes. remember on this, um, on an earlier episode of Lineage, I was talking to Jawale Jozaler, um, mm -hmm. who uh, founded Urban Bushwomen. Mm -hmm. And she talks about this moment um, of stepping onto the stage. Mm -hmm. and she said, it's like a whoosh. And you kind of yeah. go into the center of yourself. Yes. And then become whatever that animating force is. How does yes. that resonate with you? Yeah. Um, it, it, I, I, it resonates with me fully. Um, there's, it's a responsibility, I think, to, one, you have a, it's, it's more than a, uh, an ancestral responsibility. It's a responsibility to yourself to be in tune with your magic. Um, but there's a social responsibility. I think I, I absolutely find myself in the aesthetic lineage of urban bush women. Um, there's a there's a social responsibility when you understand that your art is um, an intentional tool for uh, for gathering, for coalescence, for political affinity. Um, I. I say a lot that a lot of times um, folks outside of our art forms, politicians, for instance, want um, like to talk about how art can be a bridge. And now that I work at the Kennedy Center, 
it is a political hub. I've seen all these cats there where I'm like, but you're an evil person. So I don't know how you could possibly like dance. Like, how could you like the same thing that I like? So that's where all that like art is a bridge stuff comes comes from, I think, because um, these politically gross people do uh, appreciate art, I guess. Um, but I think if you're Jawale, if you're someone like myself, if you're like um, many of um, our contemporaries, we're not trying to build a bridge to white supremacy. We're not trying to build a bridge to um, the kind of social pathologies and psychological um, positions that seek to eradicate our existence. We as women, we as black folk, we as queer folk, we um, that are outside of a able-bodied white male paradigm. Um, so we don't build bridges to them. We are batteries for us. Um, we don't um, preach to the choir. We galvanize the committed. And I think that, you know, Jaule is speaking in elemental terms, in magic terms, but I think she's also speaking in political terms, that that rush that you feel is also the rush of accountability that you have for people uh, or you have two people that um, have come in the name of self-empowerment that have come to be transformed. And as a person that knows something about self-transformation, we know that through the chemistry of sweat, through um, word, through exhaustion, we are avatars for a collective transformation within a performative space. And all these things, I think, are held either consciously or subconsciously by, um, by an artist uh, like Jawale, and, and that is who I seek to be as well. Um, I think that that may be what she's describing. One of the things, um, you know, we've known each other since we were children, uh, yeah. first stepping onto college campus mm -hmm. many, many moons ago. Mm -hmm. um, but as I was prepping for the show, one of the things that really struck me was looking at the scope of your work since that time, mm -hmm. you know? Um, you've worked in so many different genres, you know? There's dance, there's theater, there's opera, there's arts administration, poetry, you know, championships. And, and I think what I hear you speaking to now, but I would love to hear you flesh out is, is the connective tissue as you see it between all of these different ways of expressing that you've moved so seamlessly through. Mm. Yeah, I mean, freedom is the goal so freedom by any means, right? If, uh, if, if I, if I could like put an asparagus and some salmon in the oven and, uh, you know, I could get the taste of freedom outside, you know, inside of that salmon or inside of that asparagus, I would do that. <laughs> My asparagus don't taste like freedom though. <laughs> I wasn't going to so. say that I'm like asparagus. I mean, it's yummy. It's yummy. You feel me? Do a little balsamic and a little, but 
but it's but that's not the taste of freedom <laughs> <laughs> what is the taste of freedom that's the real question that is the real question and maybe that's something we could talk about that we could talk about later <laughs> i don't know if your listeners are ready but um but there but there's it's multi it's a multivalent approach right to mm -hmm. um getting to an end goal because ultimately what we're producing I think is a social vision hmm. um, a social vision of um, an inspired equitable future with black joy and black dignity at the center so how do you get there um, rhythmically kinesthetically lyrically infrastructurally um, systemically, um, these are all just component parts of, uh, you, you know, that, that map our way to the, to this horizon. I, I don't think that, um, freedom is something that you stumble upon. Like you just wake up and you're like, oh, wow, I was free. <laughs> I think that, um, I think that freedom is a designed thing. And what are the materials inside of the design? I, I, I talk about like a, a hope diet. Um, what it is that I take in that uh, keeps me optimistic because I honestly just don't, in my line of work, I can't not be hopeful. So um, what am I taking in that keeps me hopeful? And what am I putting out that can serve as material for someone else's um, composition of what freedom either um, looks like or more importantly feels like in their body. And there is no poem that will eradicate heterosexism. There is no dance that will, you know, undo the, the patriarchy. Um, but there is a, a kind of emotional construction and foundation comprised of all these elements that help us live outside of our sociological conditions by confronting them in either direct or abstract ways. So some of what you're describing in terms of a multivalent approach is just some old West Indian shit of like, I got mad jobs. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to not hustle. Um, I, I don't know how to not do too much. Sometimes. Um, uh, sometimes that uh, compromises my health. So I have to make sure that uh, I find balance in these things, too. But um, I got mad jobs. None of them feel like labor because they're all in service of one goal um, which is a kind of a a healthier more inspired more loving future for myself for my kids and hopefully for my peoples I've heard you speak about the feeling of freedom that you embody when you're in the practice of the work as well yeah Right, like specifically, um, I'm thinking about, uh, I think it was in the first, in the pilot episode of, of, of Active Hope, the mm -hmm. podcast that you co-host with Camila 
Forbes mm. and um, Pablo Prestini, mm-hmm. for your arts administrators also talking and also practicing artists. Yes. Right. And and in that episode, if my memory serves, you're talking about the idea of as a dancer, mm-hmm. you know, feeling the air underneath you, mm-hmm. feeling this sense of traveling through space and time, feeling the support, which is a large part of what freedom means, right? Like the support of Mm -hmm. the elements around you, the support of your community, the ability to be in your full expressed self, whatever that might look like. Yes, yes. Um, Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that, about as a practitioner, in addition to as a a cultural theorist, the feeling of of creating freedom. Yeah, I I mean, Justice isn't so abstract. Justice is a product of legislation. Justice is, um, I, I did not do a thing. I was accused of doing a thing. I was tried by a jury of my peers. They acquitted me of this thing that I was accused of doing. That's justice. Now, um, when we talk about economic justice or environmental justice or racial justice, things tend to get um, a a little bit more um, complex because there are um, direct competing corporate interests at play and power dynamics in in play where um, ultimately what is most just is um, a function of a lever of of power. Um, So we can talk and we can debate about the legislative merits of justice or not. Freedom is this implied principle. um, And part of the implication of freedom is that it works with justice, that it works with with law, that it is part of a, a legislative apparatus, but it's not. Freedom is a more abstract thing. Um, Even as um, we are non-incarcerated beings and are free to kind of go wherever or walk wherever, um, those get mitigated by social codes, by by all all these different elements. So when I, I think about what freedom actually is, it is an experience and phenomenon of the body. And it is less about laws or economic conditions or um, environmental placement. And it's more about um, summer in the Bronx with a quarter water and, <laughs> um, you know, uh, listening to uh, Easy Rock and Rob Bass and what happens in my body when there's a bootleg party on a Friday night in 1991 and I'm with my boys and Follow Me comes on. (laughs) It's about hearing the acapella breakdown of uh of uh, of soul to soul mm. you know however do you want me this is like the belly joint 
but not at belly. It's like the first time that you hear it and it's like three in the morning. Yes. And you know, the DJ knows what it is and just loops the acapella over and over and over again. Mm. It's about that feeling that McQueen captures in the Lover's Rock episode of small acts of having your body pressed against someone and um, feeling the push and pull of force and surrender. Mm-hmm. Those are freedom feelings. And all those are corporal experiences. They're the experiences of tension and release. And there there ain't no law that can enact by decree any of those feelings. So where I play in terms of my art practice and in terms of my administrative practice is... Um, a, a sense of how can I infrastructurally and systemically cultivate environments where freedom is most possible for the most bodies, particularly for Black bodies. And um, the, the recreation and the facilitation of freedom in the body is ultimately what I'm driven by. And the more I can make those experiences possible through performance or through other means, the more it is that I feel connected with my purpose. You have a a philosophy for community Mm -hmm. development that you've written about called the creative ecosystem. Yes. What is that? Um, Well, uh, shout out to Jeff Chang, to Shanaka Hodge, to Brett Cook, to Hadari Davis, to Joan Osato, to Jason Mateo, uh, Lauren Whitehead, um, all my co-conspirators at You Speaks in um, 2007-2008 as we were um, co-founding the Life is Living uh, Festival in Oakland, which um is an environmental festival really predicated on the idea that um, life itself is a primary environmental resource that at the time that we were um, we were creating uh, the life is living festival there was a lot of talk about the green collar economy and we use the color green and still do as code for environmental responsibility and action. But the thing is, is that green by then had been branded in such a way that black folk were outside, besides like Majora Carter, black folk were kind of outside of the green conversation. But um, we had all these sustainable survival practices that went back to our ancestors that were from, you know, jarring fruit to walking and bicycling and there are all these sustainable survival practices just kind of born out of necessity that um, are environmental practices. We also had um, the, the knowledge that we were in a place politically where um, advancing 
you know, the, the, the kind of green brand of the Prius and, you know, the Whole Foods patronage wasn't something that we could prioritize when we were literally being hunted and are being hunted um, in the street. So um, so this incorporation of the vocabulary and the vernacular of nature to begin thinking about biocultural diversity to know that nature loves diversity, that um, a weapon of white supremacy is monoculturalism, we started to think about organizing in a way that also modeled the diverse way that ecologies are most healthy. So um, when a whole bunch of dancers are gathered, you get a, you get a certain kind of energy. When a whole bunch of drummers are gathered, you get a certain kind of energy. When you have a room with a drummer, a dancer, a lawyer, um, a farmer, a writer, an economist, you have a different kind of energy, but you also have this diverse set of skills that if um, located inside of one single inquiry can produce, I think, um, really interesting strategies for progress. So the idea of a creative ecosystem is to identify leaders in various fields and to intentionally um, bring them together in the name of responding to one question. Um, what does equity look like? Where is the public imagination? Can we design freedom? How do we weaponize love? Um, philosophical questions that in my administrative role, in my institutional role, then get supported with institutional resources um, as a, a means of invitation for diverse groups of folks to produce responses to these philosophical questions. This is a, a, a model for how we might also think about urban planning or civic design um, in a different way. Um, there are any number of boards of directors. You know, I'm sure Boeing has like lawyers and engineers and um, aeronautical experts and economists on their board. But I wonder how many musicians they have on their board. Um, I know not-for-profit arts organizations tend to have um, some artists on their board, but as kind of a fundraising and governance tool for nonprofit organizations, we tend to have more lawyers and, you know, marketing people than we do, than we do artists, right? So, you know, Joe Biden's cabinet don't have no artists on it. So um, how to center creative intellect within diverse environments using um, an intentional pedagogy with inquiry at the center aimed at producing social advancement. That's the frame with which uh, or the frame that that I use that we use to think about cultural organizing, um, taking our cues from nature with a freedom design in mind, taking from Frarian pedagogy 
thinking about what the right question is and moving forward from there. Right. You began your your answer to that question with, um, you know, shout outs to your collaborators in the Bay. Mm-hmm. I know you've also, as you were talking, I was thinking about collaborations you've done with with folks like the Astor Gates, who's also, mm-hmm. you know, um, working on on city planning and, and and urban development through the lens of an artist, or mm-hmm. or Daniel Bernard Remain, who you've collaborated with multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got this whole, um, I guess, ecosystem to borrow your your word there. Um, of peers and collaborators that you've been building this work with. Um, and I'm also curious to know, like, ancestrally, you know, your artistic mm-hmm. lineage, who, who's, whose feet are you walking inside of? There are living people that, um, that, that I, I want to be like, Um, when I was working at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in, uh, in San Francisco, um, you know, my boss was like, you know, you, you're doing all these things, you're doing so much. Do do you, do you have any examples of folks that are, you know, is there anybody that, um, that you can talk to about, she didn't say work-life balance, but basically she was just like, she was trying to figure out a way to get me to work less, mm. you know. And I was just Not like, the people that I look up to, to yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, well, part of it is because I was working in such varied ways that not all of my work was happening in the building that she I was see. running. Like, I was clear that that uh, Yorba Buena Center was a place where I worked, but it wasn't the work. Got it. Um, that that the work wasn't fragmented, but it was happening in many places. And so maybe for her, it appeared to be, if not, um, she got that it was it, it was coherent, but she was just like, can you just do it all here? <laughs> but, you know, to your question and, and to her question, it was just like the, the people that I look up to work harder than I do. Otherwise, I'm not looking up to them. Like, why am I going? Like, why am I looking up to somebody that don't work as hard or isn't doing as much? Yeah. So, um, there's the the person that that always that I always always think about in terms of like, um, like who I'm looking up to. The person is Bill T. Jones for me. Um, there's a a creative lineage for sure. Um, Entezaki Shange, Nikki Giovanni, Sweet Honey in the Rock, Sonia Sanchez. There's a creative lineage that is Black Thought, that's Rakim, that's Nas, that's Chuck D of Public Enemy, that's KRS-One. Um, there's a creative lineage, there's an intellectual lineage that is um, Du Bois and Robeson and Angela Davis and Bell Hooks. Um, most of these folks, thank God, are um, still on this plane. Um, and and so I I think about um, maybe to divert or to complicate. Um, this question of ancestry and to uh, kind of 
throw a glance back at the title of this podcast and the, the premise of our conversation. This is a little less about um, the transcendence of a corporal plane and more about a kind of trajectory of accountability. Mm-hmm. Who am I? Who am I responsible to? Um, who have I fashioned myself after? Um, yeah, and 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 those folks are all artists that hustle mad hard. I kind of have to go back to um, to our college days. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know. I know so much of who I am, who I was to become, who who I will still become mm-hmm. is rooted by the foundation that I got educationally, one that placed us at the center, mm-hmm. you know, um, how transformative that was for me, how mm-hmm. those seeds were planted and nurtured, you know, mm-hmm. not only of, of a black feminist um, praxis, mm-hmm. but also what it means to be in community in the ways that you were just talking about with the folks who are, on the same, that we have the blessing of being on the same plane with and working collaboratively with. Mm -hmm. I wonder, you know, Spelman and Morehouse are sister and brother institutions, although I guess that's a contested statement. Yeah. (laughs) Bennett is technically the the sister institution of Morehouse, but Spelman and Morehouse operate as as a single institution in many ways, right? Mm -hmm. As part of the larger AUC. Mm -hmm. I wonder um, how much of who you've become took mm. root from those days. Oh man. Dag. <laughs> oh man. Okay. So we were, I know everybody's era is the best era. And then, and then <laughs> I know. But our freshman year is the year in Atlanta that Outcast's first album came out. Our our freshman year was the Midnight Marauders year, and it was also the 36 Chambers year. Yes. Um, our, our freshman year was a, a kind of, um, you know, the, the Clinton era, the, the dawn of the Clinton era after 12 years of, of Reagan and Bush. Um, our freshman year was the year um, was the year that um, it, Atlanta was really ramping up its preparation for the 1996 Olympics. Um, there was a kind of, um, so, so there was a, a political climate. There was frankly, the, the dawn of the internet. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, my, my, it was my first email address. Yeah. Um, so it was the dawn of the internet. There was a political climate. There was a political climate. There was a cultural climate. There was a, a, a kind of um, rapid growth in infrastructural preparation for you know for the Olympics. There was just a lot cracking, you know. Um, it was the year of the chronic. it was like the chronic came out in like the fall of 92 but it didn't really hit till 93 so um so all that was going on also 
in our senior year, uh, Tupac was murdered in the fall and uh, the notorious B.I.G. was murdered in the spring. So we also were there during the kind of the the run up um, to that time in terms of geographical factionalism. Um, so what was happening very specifically with that with that last bit was that the music that we grew up on that had a, a very distinct political consciousness was turning and maybe turning away from a kind of lyrical accountability, which meant that there was a void for those of us who loved the element of hip-hop and hip-hop culture that was intentionally political. And I think in that space, poets began to take a, a different kind of center in terms of um, hip-hop expression. Um, we were a generation of poets that were equally informed by Stetsasonic or Goody Mob or Outkast as we were by Morrison or Paul Marshall. So um, our understanding of the literary and of lyricism um, really uh, kind of uh, created a crossroads moment for us where we could be of both. And that's where um, like, like against all that backdrop, that's where I kind of learned how to be an independent artist and how to be a cultural organizer is responding to all those impulses. And we all are fruits of the soil that we're planted in. But Atlanta was really, really fertile soil at that time for, you know, for, for all the reasons that I named and Atlanta is the capital of African America. And the Atlanta University Center is, to borrow from Howard, is a kind of Mecca inside of the capital of African America. So it was the first time that I hung with black folk from D.C. My roommates were from Delaware, were from Detroit were from Boston. I was from New York. My girl was from Pittsburgh. You know, I dated folks from South Carolina and from Oakland. I mean, I wouldn't have moved to Oakland had I not met, had all the coolest people that I met in Atlanta not been from the Bay. Like just everybody, everybody cool was from Cali. So I was like, oh, Cali, that's a, that's a thing to do. You know, whereas growing up in New York, it's like Cali, man, that's that weird ass place way over there where they eat tofu and shit. So um, so it was it was a ripe time. It was a fertile time for many sociological um, reasons um, where I lived inside of the radius of all that, um, you know, kind of quietly feeling into. Um, a sense of black purpose, um, knowing that there was a lot of rhetoric at a historically black 
college or or university that there's there's a lot of like up by the bootstraps ism there's a lot of um kind of um religious rhetoric that is gestural or symbolic um but i i had a desire to do and to activate inside of that um, and in order to do that, you had to galvanize all those forces. You had to play within that wide field and distill it into something that felt not only digestible, but inspirational. And fortunately, I was around a lot of inspiring and talented folks. So, yeah, those days. Those days. Yeah, bruh. You know, one thing that I did mean to ask that I... um want to make sure to get in before we're all said and done is is the story of your name um Ah. when I first met you you were Mark Joseph and I think it was while Mm. we were um at at while we were in college Mm -hmm. um that you took on the name Bamuti can you can you tell us the story of your name yeah um there's a um a set of elders on the Atlanta University Center's uh campus um with uh, uh, one of my elders, my Baba, Dr. Daniel Omotosho Black, that um, created a space for um, Americanized rites of passage. Um, We have, um, I I think in black culture, all these um, unofficial moments in time that um, mark our passage to uh, to adulthood. Um, you know, there are religious rites, there are um, ceremonial rites, um, but but Doctor Black created a space where um, young men and young women could really um, kind of focus and mark their growth according to the principles of humility, forgiveness, um, spirituality, wisdom, and nurturing. And to um, consider the uh, one's path to self-mastery within a paradigm of co-joined principles. And among the, the many kind of practices, among the many uh, ceremonies, that transpired during that time was um, the adoption of um, uh, um, of a name that emerged from the African continent. Um, and so I was on a journey with about 45 um, uh, young men and young women at the time, each of whom was um, assigned a name relative to um, their personal characteristics, but also a kind of crown to hold over their head that they might grow into. So um, our meeting place um, uh, during this time was this big old tree on Clark Atlanta's campus. And my name, Bamuti, is um, an Endebele um, word. Uh, the Endebele are an ethnic group uh, germane to South Africa, Botswana, Zimbabwe. And um, but mostly South Africa and Zimbabwe, what, what are now known as um, as those countries. And um, Bamuti means of the tree. Um, 
in their tradition, the tree is a place of magic, is a place where um, the divine um, announces itself. Muti is a, is a word that you hear associated with the idea of root and root magic. Um, and so uh, as I uh, came out of that space, kept my first name, which was also my dad's first name, Mark. Kept my last name, which is my grandfather's last name, Joseph. And also kept Bamuti as a, as a way of um, holding on to those principles, holding on to that time, uh, and also continuing to um, set a, a, a ledge for myself to approach I want to be a place where the divine announces itself. I want to stay close to that root. Thanks for spending this time with me today. Yeah. Appreciate my you. honor. Appreciate <laughs> you, family. Talk to you soon. Um, I will find you very, very soon. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Peace. Be good. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps others discover the show. You can also follow us on the socials at Lineage Podcast and visit lineagepodcast.com for more information about this project and to watch the new meditative film, We Hold These Truths. It features reflections on ancestry from season two lineage guests and was produced in partnership with Park Avenue Armory. The Lineage logo was designed by Tony Moore Images and the show's theme music is composed by Cody Gottbeats. For more from me, head on over to shawneejamila.com. And stay tuned right here. New episodes drop every other Tuesday.